Gareth is going to come and minister to us shortly. But before that, I'm going to read today's passage for us. Um, if you have a Bible, do open it up to 1 John chapter 2. Uh, there are also pew Bibles sitting around the church, so do grab one of those. And I'd encourage you to keep it open as, as Gareth preaches. Uh, so 1 John uh, and chapter 2, and we'll start reading at verse 1. And God's word says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not, only for, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Thank you, Gareth. Thank you, Ollie, and thank you all for making the effort to come out, and I'm sure what is going to be a busy summer with lots of competing priorities for you, uh, whether it's summer camps, family get-togethers, or as one person made their excuses this morning, just keep my sermon a ninth birthday party. So I'll be having words with them afterwards. Now, I'm sure many of you have had that moment in your life when you're driving down the road without a care in the world, and one of those nefarious engine management warning lights suddenly comes on in your dashboard. Last year, I was halfway down to Dublin for a music rehearsal, when in a matter of about 20 seconds, one after the other, there were no fewer than six warning lights came on. The ABS braking system was offline, the lights had gone, the tire pressure management system was no longer working, uh, there was a sensor gone, and there was something else that I still haven't been able to work out from the manual what the light was actually for. And I had to make the choice as I was going down there whether I was going to spend Saturday morning at the side of the M1 because I didn't fancy my chances of switching the car off and on again or was I going to push forward and hope that I will get there in time. I drove the rest of the journey hyper alert, vigilant for anything that may indicate that the car was going to grind to a halt or burst into flames. 
But thankfully, uh, that didn't happen, and my local friendly neighbourhood mechanic was able to fix the problem uh, for a not too horrendous price uh, a couple of days later. Now, if you'd asked me how I got on, how did I get on the rehearsal, I said, well, I drove my car, and perhaps it was on a wing and a prayer. But if you'd asked me about, well, what do those warning lights mean? What did you think had gone wrong? You know, how was the engine not working? I wouldn't have had a clue. I just know that something potentially had gone catastrophically wrong. And I didn't really need to know. I just needed to know that the car would get me there safely and back. But, you know, I can't disavow Olex just because if I hadn't known about what was needed to drive, like what fuel to use, you know, had to top the car up with oil, coolant, had I made sure that it was yearly serviced and passed its MOT, I couldn't have disavowed all responsibility for it. I need to know when the tyres are flat or when I'm about to run out of petrol. If you neglect these things, you can cause damage to your engine or maybe the car doesn't work at all. And in this passage that um, Ollie read for us from 1 John, it's one of the more straightforward books, actually, in the New Testament. And John uses a lot of simple words in his writing in these letters. And he's very fond of these sharp contrasts between light and dark, truth and lies, love and hate. But there are two uses of a word in this book um, that are translated by our English word propitiation, which is in verse 2 which are not easy to understand. When was the last time you had used the word propitiation in everyday chat? Maybe you've never even heard it before. Well, we're going to peer under the bonnet to see what John knew that his readers knew and understood, but maybe it's not so just familiar to us, because our intention is to find out what the Lord Jesus has done by being a propitiation for our sins. Now, our intention is not to turn everybody into spiritual petrol heads this morning. We're not going to be exhaustively looking at all of Scripture's teaching on this. But we want to know, how do we maintain good spiritual health as we think about the cross? What are the spiritual warning lights that might flash whenever we find that we haven't attended to what God has said in his word for our health and benefit? So John opens with this lovely little phrase, my little children. He's writing these things to his congregation so that they may not sin. But if they did sin, Jesus Christ was an advocate, someone who in a court came alongside and pleaded their case. You see, different times, different congregations, different churches, different periods of church history will have different warning lights flashing. In John's time, it was people who said, well, actually, now that we believe in Christ, our sins are gone, we've ascended to a higher spiritual plane, sin no longer really is a thing. But John says, whoa, just slow down a bit there. Yes, God's Word gives you the power to overcome sin, but it's still present in your experience. It is there alongside the new life that Christ has manifest. And, and Danny took us through last week what this new life was about and how it reflected God's character that we can also see in this beautiful creation. So John wants us to understand from Christ's propitiation, his work, what it is that we need to attend to and take heed of in our generation. Because I think there may be some slightly different warnings that we need to heed, some ways in which we can maybe twist or misinterpret what Christ has actually done for us 
on the cross. Now, there's a quote that's attributed to a famous Christian writer from a few hundred years ago called John Bunyan that goes something along the lines of, either this book will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book. Now, listening to and reading the words of God in Scripture is one of the ways in which we maintain our spiritual engine. And the Bible shows us that even though you may have believed in Christ and come to Him for salvation, you will stumble. Sin is still present with you. The things that pull us away from God's best for us. But we are like little children. We are now given the power and the choice to be able to make decisions that say no to sin and selfishness and yes to Christ and his right way of living or his righteousness. And what a wonderful thing that I find it is whenever I have sinned, whether intentionally, unintentionally, whether habitually or whether it's a one-off, whatever the situation, that Jesus Christ has made a way for me to come to him and say, I plead what you have done to cover my sin. It's like the Christian comes before God in, through Christ and Christ says, this Christian is guilty as charged. She has done these things. She did them willingly. She did them knowing that they were against your law and your commandments, God. But I have died for her. My blood covers her. She is let go. And God the Father discharges this Christian into the care of Christ, her advocate. So how does the Lord Jesus actually do this? How does he give us this principle of what the Bible says, new life? But also, how is he able to make us grow? How is he able to sort of say that our sins are forgiven? What he doesn't do is just sweep sin under the carpet or say that, look, it's okay, God is just forgiving you. Something has actually happened to make us able to be forgiven. And this is what we come to in verse 2, where John says, he is the propitiation for our sins. What does this word actually mean? Well, like a lot of things, you know, this is the, you know, the end bit of my Bible. There's a huge, massive bit beforehand. And when you start reading the Bible from Genesis, you hear the account of God creating the world, the sin of man, the way things began to disintegrate, but also, at the same way, how God is launching this rescue plan to bring people back to himself. And then the story gets more exciting when we find how God rescues his people from slavery in Egypt. And just as about you think, yes, they've been rescued, amazing things are going to happen, we are then hit with chapter after chapter about furniture designs of some sort of mobile temple, of the types of material that are being used, and then we go into all sorts of rules and regulations about animal sacrifices, purity laws, and all that type of thing. And I sort of think to myself, Lord, this is a great story. Could you not have maybe put some of this stuff in an appendix? And the Lord says, no, this is not appendiceal material. This is not something that, you know, you put at the back of your thesis or your references to say, look, you know, if you're interested or you're a bit more keen, here's where you can find further info. What the Lord is saying is actually, this is core material, and it's difficult. It's foreign to us, to our experience. We don't sacrifice animals, at least I'm not aware of any of you that do on a regular basis. 
But God is teaching his people something, something really important about the nature of who they are and how he's going to relate to them. And just because we enjoy the benefits of the New Testament, of who Christ is and what he's done, doesn't mean to say that we can kind of just ignore or gloss over it. Again, using my now increasingly stretched car analogy, that's kind of a bit like just getting into the car every day and just not even worrying about, does this require any maintenance? You're going to run out of fuel or electricity very soon. You've kind of got to understand what you're dealing with. And the more that you understand, the more that you can draw on, maintain, and invest in those resources. And this is what God is teaching his people. Because one of the principles that needed to be hammered home to Israel, as to all people, is that God takes sin seriously. God takes when people do bad things to other people seriously. God is a God of justice and fairness and equity. He is the one who is the head of equality, diversion, and inclusivity. He is the one who creates everyone equal so that no one can create um, a hierarchy of, well, I'm richer than you, I'm a different race than you, I am smarter than you, or whatever, and say, therefore, I am better than you. That is not God's way at all. But God has placed everyone on an equal footing, and he gives us each of a choice, whether we're to follow him or our own desires. But as is our uniform experience, we go our own way. The Bible says we're like little sheep that have gone astray. We follow the next person, we follow our own desires. And God said that your life is precious, and either there's an accounting for sin by you, by your life, or else something is substituted for that. And in the Old Testament and all the, these laws that you'll read about in the books of Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, these were animals, lambs, sheep, that stood in place of the person. Their death meant that a person's sin could be covered over or provided atonement or taken away. And there was something of the relationship restored with, with God. Now, the word that we translate propitiation here was actually used of a bit of uh, furniture in this tabernacle. It was the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. This Ark, which signified the presence, the power, and the justice of God, had a lid on it. And on this lid, there were carved these two angel figures with wings. And these wings overstretched this lid. And once a year, a high priest would come in with blood from a sacrifice and would actually sprinkle this. It's, it's pretty gross to think about. But he would sprinkle this lid, and this, if you like, seat of judgment, this place where God's holiness was most manifest, didn't become a place of justice or condemnation for the Israelites. It became a seat of forgiveness. And it's why it was called the mercy seat. And what happened there was the priest made an atonement or a covering for the sins of the people so that God's judgment didn't fall on them. It fell on the animal and its blood. But there was also a way which God said, well, I'm taking those sins away. I'm forgetting them. I am dealing with them. And a new relationship is restored. These sacrifices were very 
burdensome, but they were teaching people that this is how I can live with you as your God on my terms so that you're not consumed by my holiness. Sin really does create a barrier between you and me, between you and your neighbor, and even between you and creation. We now know in the sacrifice of Christ that these animals were just like a very, very flimsy shadow. Christ is the reality. And John is keen to stress to his readers that, look, you need to go back and understand when you're sinning, when you're living, when your life is inconsistent, when things are going wrong in your Christian life, what Christ has actually done. Because Christ's sacrifice, it averts the wrath, the anger of God against sin, so it brings peace. It takes our sins away from us so we're no longer answerable to them. That's God's mercy. And yet, those sins are actually punished. They're not just sweeped under the carpet. God's justice is satisfied. And this propitiation occurred when Christ was sacrificed on a Roman cross for the sin, not just of John's readers, but for the sins of all sorts of people, for the sins of people like you and me, no matter what our culture or our background or what we have done. And this is the glory of the Christian message. You don't need to do something in order to be fit to meet God's standard. God has already done everything for you in Christ, the propitiation for sins. Now, if you were to ask a young Christian or somebody who was very new in the faith, how do you know you're a Christian? They might say, well, I believed in Christ that he died for my sins on the cross, and I believe that. And that's a totally, perfectly correct answer. But it's a little bit incomplete, and John wants his readers and his listeners to, to go on a little bit further, because he knows that spiritual petrol heads, the ones that have really got under the bonnet, know how the spiritual engine is working, they're the ones that often experience the most peace, security, joy, and power in their Christian life. And I know and read about many Christians, I've um, lived amongst them in this church and in others, who have found in their experience by digging into the sacrifice of Christ, what it implies for them, making every effort in their life to align their lives with God's reality, that they know God's peace. They know there's no shortcuts in tackling the difficulties of life other than getting back to the cross of Christ. Now, there's some damaging distortions, these spiritual warning lights that we need to take care of in our culture because people today have some objections to this teaching about Christ standing in our place, bearing God's wrath, forgiving our sins, and restoring a relationship. Some people think that this just is painting God as an angry, uh, you know, uh, vehement God who needs placated, prone to emotional outbursts. And they caricature God the Father as a bad father, as just miserable and angry, who only is pleased to us, with us, when Christ has died. They want to move away from talk of God's wrath being satisfied instead, wanting to talk about God's love being magnified. Now, we can appreciate where this is coming from, that we want to protect the character of God, but nevertheless, the Bible really clearly teaches that God the Father isn't miserable or angry all the time. It was actually out of God's love that he sent Jesus. God so loved the world 
And John uses the world as this system that is opposed to him, people who hate God and are hating each other. God so loved all of this mess that he sent his son. Paul in Romans talks about how God put forward Christ as a propitiation to save people. J.I. Packer, an American theologian and Bible teacher, wrote that the wrath of God is as personal and potent as his love. And so we mustn't picture God as having this split personality where he wants to be loving, but he's actually really angry, and then Christ has to step in and, you know, make everything good again. That's not how it is. God is not confused. God is not split. He is not divided in his character. He has a settled and holy wrath against wrongdoing, but his love and mercy are also there. And it is out of that love and mercy that Christ was sent to rescue us. But then we come to a second objection, an objection that was thrown in my face uh, many years ago by one of the uh, local attendees at some of the pubs in the area. And he said, well, why wasn't God the Father then man enough to die himself? Why did he send Christ? You know, if he was a man, why didn't he come himself? Why did he delegate it to his son? And this question, which I kind of had to think about as a young Christian, um, it supposes that the Lord Jesus was this kind of random, unconnected third party that you know, God the Father arbitrarily said, right, okay, you're going to bear the sin of the world, on with it. That again is a fallacy. God the Son is God. Jesus is part of the Trinity, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, and He has that authority to be able to take on the sin that was committed against Him. He has the rights to the kingdom, if you like. He is the one who is able to say, this is how it is, because he is the boss. He is not some unconnected third party that has just been wheeled in. He is God himself. But because he is man and lives as a perfect man, he can effectively be our substitute before God. And then there's this third misunderstanding, and that is that, you know, the cross is kind of out there. It was an historical event, and it's something that God uses to make everything okay. And, you know, as Christians, we can treat it a bit like a bank account. So we open a bank account, you know, we've asked forgiveness from God. He goes, right, that's okay. I've now put this store of forgiveness. And anytime you sin, you know, come back to the ATM and, and you can withdraw some forgiveness. But we treat it like a bank account. I mean, we've no relationship with a bank manager. We don't go and advocate for the bank or, you know, enthuse about its mission and how wonderful it is. That's not what the Christian relationship is like. It's not something we can just say, right, God, it's out there. I've kind of attended that as if you know, you've done your will, you've sorted out the insurance for this year, and you go on living whatever way you want. No, we're not to continue in sin. God's grace is free, and we can be forgiven, but it is not cheap. It costs the Lord Jesus everything. And this misunderstanding, I think, really, you know, I find myself thinking, oh, well, God will forgive me, that's his job, at times when I'm not disciplined enough to go back to the cross. When I think like that, I denigrate or reduce the power of the cross. That's what we were singing about this morning, because it stops short of seeing what the cross was designed for. It's not just to take it away from God's wrath, but it is an entrance into a fruitful and eternal life with God. And if I say that I'm a Christian and my life for behavior isn't changed, John says here, well, the truth is not in me. I'm actually a liar. 
It's like a car with no fuel, no power, and I say, well, I'm, I'm a wonderful driver, but I've never actually got into the car which doesn't drive, can't drive, but yet I'm claiming to be a driver. What is the evidence for that? It would rightly cause somebody to question, are you deceived? Is your head away with it? So what is your view of, of the cross? Is it just as almost like a magic wand where, well, I believe the facts of Christ's death and resurrection, but it doesn't impact me? Or is it something where you realize God has personally thought of you in sending his son? And that every time that you sin, yes, Christ is pleading your case before his father because of what he's done, but sin is also an affront to God. Do you think you're actually in some ways offending God by your sin? Do you have any desire to go, well, actually, I'm not going to repeat those same patterns of behavior. I want to please the Lord. Now, we've labored a lot about this idea of propitiation in verse 2 because it is so key, and it kind of unlocks the rest of our passage. Because John says here, Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you've had from the beginning. And this old commandment is the word that you've heard. But at the same time, it is a new commandment. It's new and true in him and you as well. So what's John getting at here? You see, God told people that the two greatest commandments were to love God with all our being and to love our neighbors as ourselves. But in Christ, this old commandment becomes perfectly fleshed out in Christ who was actually made a human being. He wasn't a concept. He wasn't like a piece of tabernacle furniture or an animal sacrifice or, or something less than human and real. He actually took on flesh and he demonstrated real practical love to hurting, vulnerable, and sinful people. It is the difference between night and day, darkness and light. Because what Christ does is that he gives us the ability not just to sort of go, well, I've failed God and I've failed my neighbor, and I have to keep going back to all these sacrifices. He actually gives us power because there is a change in us. He talks about the true light is already shining and it's overcoming this darkness of sin that affects each one of us. It's like God has come in and he's, he's sort of editing our spiritual DNA and he's repairing each strand at a time so that when it is rewritten and retranslated, we see small changes in our Christian life. We not see or feel the effects immediately. It may be years before people have their anger their lust, their selfishness, their emotional instability, their personality disorders, their anxieties beginning to be overcome as they wrestle with that and draw on Christ. But there will be a change. And this new commandment isn't just because of Christ coming and giving a better example. There's a wonderful thing in verse 8 which says, not only is it true in him, it's also true in you. If you're a Christian, your life is now a demonstration of God's highest purposes for humanity on this earth. Have you ever thought about that you're an ambassador of God's love? As Jesus said, people will know we're his followers because of our love one for another. And so you can see in verse 9 then, this contrast with those who hate their brother Okay. Now, 
if we find it hard enough to get on with our fellow Christians, how much less other people that don't share our worldview? Hating our brother is like being blind in a dark room where you don't know where you're going and where there are stumbling blocks all over the place to trip you up. There is a, a medical condition um, that I've seen once or twice where people have a certain type of stroke and um, become blind, but whatever way it has affected them, their brain doesn't know that they're blind, so they actually cannot see a lot of things, but they don't know that they can't see, and in trying to piece this together, they, they, they sort of make things up or they minimize it or have workarounds. It's called Anton syndrome. And sin is a little bit like this. It gives a spiritual Anton syndrome where it blinds us to God's realities, but it also blinds us to the fact that we are blind. And this explains why so many people, they can almost see Christ and his goodness, but they stop far short of personally appropriating his truth for themselves. It's a very dangerous situation to be in. But praise be to God that when we do come to him, he does make us see, he makes us see the reality of what we're like before him and also the power of Christ. Now, I have wrestled and I do wrestle at times with feelings of hate, even against fellow Christians in the past who might have offended me. And it's really interesting, I'm sure many of you have experienced this, where maybe even years later, you find yourself in your idle moments thinking about, oh yeah, do you remember that, what that person said and how they treated me at work or, you know, what happened? And you sort of begin to fantasize about what you'd like to say, about how you would like to vindicate yourself, some smart answer that you'd give, some way in which you emerged as the hero from that scenario, and you really want them to know how you feel and how wrong they were. And what can happen is that this kind of musing can become addictive and you go back to it and it makes you feel good, but it is not something that is arising from love, it's actually arising from hate. It arises from a self-reliance, a self-justification. And we need to get control of it. Otherwise, it will rot us from the inside. But if you make an attempt, when you go back to the cross and think how horrible sin is and how wonderful Christ is, and the purpose, the new mission and calling we have, it gives you the power to actually go, no, I'm actually going to start not meditating and fantasizing on those thoughts I'm going to start thinking about what Christ has done for me and how might I even be able to bless this person? How might I be able to actually begin to resolve this situation? It may mean going and in faith, telling the person how you feel, saying that, look, you know, this has been troubling me. It may mean pointing out where they have gone wrong. It may mean protecting people who are vulnerable. But it may also mean confessing your own sin, your own part in whatever has happened. And it may mean the possibility of rejection, misunderstanding, people even laughing at you for doing that. But yet John is so clear that Christ's love can change the situation. A robust love that seeks forgiveness, reconciliation, that brings justice, mercy, and peace to our lives. So let's reflect on this morning. Are we actually living like that? In our idle moments, do we hate our brother? How do we bring Christ into that situation? 
Because if we don't, and we just think, oh, well, you know, yeah, I'll, I'll deal with that some other time, and I'm actually really, I want to really think about this. That's not Christian. You are living in darkness, and you're making a liar of yourself, and you're spurning Christ's sacrifice. That's not what he wants for you. But he wants us to enjoy what Paul in Romans talks about at the beginning and end of his big letter, the obedience of faith. He wants us to know that God's commands aren't burdensome or difficult. They aren't restricting us. They aren't making us less than who we are, but they're actually making us more full, more real, more substantial people. Those who live according to the flesh and their desires are living in this world's twilight, a world that is fading away because Christ has come, the light of the world. In this short section, it is God's word that saturates how we can draw on our resources. John is writing scripture. Little children, I'm writing these things to you. In verse four, God's commandment is a word that actually, if we keep, it's like keeping his commandments. God's commandments and his words are the same things. We are meant to read God's word and to think, oh, how does my life need to change? In verse seven, God's commandment isn't a new thing, it's something they've heard from the beginning. And then finally, to the young men in this chapter, the word of God abides in them. Christ's sacrifice acts alongside his written word and our active obedience to help us walk like a proper Christian. And we can't separate those things, okay? Every day, and I don't do it myself, my shoe, but every day I've got to think, how has Christ's sacrifice on the cross with what I have read in the scriptures change what I'm going to do today, change how I'm going to interact with my work colleagues, my family, change how I think about you know, my finances, think about where I'm investing my energies. If I kind of forget about the cross, I'm still in my sins. I have no spiritual power. If I forget about God's word, it's like I have no fuel, I have no power, I have nothing to meditate on, I have nothing to convict for the Holy Spirit to change me and empower and guide me. And if I forget about the need for practical action, I'm simply a hypocrite in darkness. Christ's cross, Christ's word, and our faithful obedience. We've got to keep those things really tight together. And John knows how this is all acting out in the church, doesn't he? The church is one of the single best examples of how all of this stuff can come together. John writes to these different generations, the little children, the children, the young men, those who have um, been older, a bit more experienced in the faith. And he goes, you know, you've overcome the evil ones, young men. You are strong. The word of God is in you. The word of God is in us, not because somebody's taken a theology course or knows how to argue for this, that, or the other, or because they've memorized chunks of scripture, but because they've heard God's word and they are obeying it. Fathers and elders, and including women as well, know God from the beginning. They've tested what he is like, sometimes over many years, and they can be investing in the church, helping young people to overcome evil and sin, and helping people to come to an understanding of what Christ has done for them. Living in hate and darkness makes us shadows of ourselves and diminishes us under fellow man. But living here, cross-shaped, bringing Christ into every situation through faithful obedience means we can live our best 
and brightest life now. And it shows a watching world the beauty of Christ's kingdom. Our closing hymn that I invite the band to come up to for now is called Hear the Call of the Kingdom, and it perfectly captures and brings together many of the thoughts in this passage. I'm going to pray, and then after we've sung this hymn, our service is over. Please come back in the future weeks to hear the rest um, of this letter and the practical teaching it has for us and the encouragement we have from God's Word in Christ. Father God, we thank you that our Lord Jesus Christ has stepped in to take our place, to take our sin, bearing it away, and to put us, Father, in the center of your purposes. I pray, Father, we wouldn't treat his cross as something light. I pray, Father, we wouldn't live a double life, living in darkness and pretending we're living in the light. But let us, Father, take these truths and test you, test your word, Father. Put it to the test as we rely on your commandments, as we obey them, and as we trust in him for our blessings to come, Father for the answers to the prayers, for overcoming sin. Help us, Father, in short, to enjoy the kingdom of Christ and his rule in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray.